This is the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. Hello, everybody. This is Trevor in lieu of Paul. Oh, wait, there's Paul. Hey, we're here both here. <laughs> I was going to say, is my camera not working or what? <laughs> oh, well, Paul, how have you been? We kind of talked a little bit offline, but what do you want yeah. to tell listeners, you know? Yeah, no, I've been good. I, I'm enjoying it. It's officially October. The weather is really cooling down. I mean, it's funny. My wife and I were looking around and all of a sudden it's like, wait, it's it's fall. Like <laughs> there are actually leaves on the ground. Like some of the trees are starting to change. There's we've been getting a lot of kind of mist and rain and stuff. It's funny how it sneaks up on you, even though we've been talking about it, you know, for a couple of weeks and looking forward to it. Somehow yeah. it just happens. Let's not let it slip by. I know. We we actually so listeners, um, we just released a Patreon episode where we talk about the fall and fall reading again, kind of revisiting our episode from last year, not in like we retreaded it or anything like that. I don't think anyway, but just, you know, celebrating the season and talking about some things that we have on our plate to read during the season to take advantage of it. So I hope that many of you are also able to do that, that it's not all of a sudden, you know, the end of, of January and the doldrums of winter. And you're like, wait a minute, I missed all of it. (laughs) Exactly. Now you got to try to enjoy it as you can, but I know firsthand that life can trick you sometimes. You get so busy and all of a sudden you look up and you're like, wait, I missed it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I had an enjoyable thing yesterday. I sent you a video. Yeah. Um, My son is in high school and he's part of the orchestra and the chamber orchestra playing the viola. And they had a festival that takes place right there where the, the Shakespeare festival is. And I think it is in conjunction with it, or at least is in tandem, because Mm -hmm. a lot of it are students coming to perform plays or or roles and be evaluated and, you know, kind of judged and and given uh, good feedback. But they also have singers. My gosh, the the number of people I passed that were just practicing their lovely Renaissance England (laughs) music, um, singing, it was pretty fun. And then they have orchestras or, you know, various things playing Old English songs. And it was a lot of fun. And we then got to see a play. No, not one of the Shakespeare plays. They, they're putting on The Sound of Music as well. And it's it's super professional. I mean, this isn't just like a community uh, throwing together some things. I mean, this is a, a real theatrical district and, you know, big theaters all all within walking distance of each other so that they can put on several of these things. And it was really impressive. And it kind of was fun to get away for a day from work. Yeah. And then on the way home, I'm the parent uh, volunteer. It's me and the other teacher. We both have a Suburban full of kids. Oh, boy. I get a flat tire on, oh, no. on the interstate about 50 miles outside of Cedar City and in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, so I got home a little bit later than I thought I would. I jumped out there. I don't own a Suburban. They do not store their tire just in the back like normal. You have to figure out how to use all the tools to get the thing to, to come down from underneath the vehicle. I've had to do this too many times. I think. Do you remember a year ago when mm-hmm. I was over in your neck of the woods? I was like in, I think I might have been in Laramie of all places. Paul, you get to go to the cool places for your work trips, you know. <laughs> Nashville, Seattle, Vegas, you know, (laughs) I was in Laramie, Wyoming and just a little ways out of it. And right as I'm passing Rollins, I had a flat tire in my car. 
So yeah, I'm I'm getting I'm getting decent at these interstate roadside changing a flat tire while traffic zooms right oh, behind man. me. You know, it was that's brutal. It wasn't fun, but the kids think, had a great attitude, and it, it it was you know it was fixed within just a little bit. That sounds like it was a bit of an adventure. So that's really cool. <laughs> yeah, they'll have a story to tell. <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, hopefully today you'll get a uh, relatively restful day to recover. I hope so too. We do have family coming over this evening, and I'm—I'll admit—I love family, and I love family coming over. But every time that it's happening, I'm like, "Is today the best day? Don't I need right. to rest today?" And I'm like, "That's how I feel every single day." So <laughs> it is the best day, <laughs> right? It's the tricky part with weekends is there's those precious hours that are not taken up, and that's yep. often when family stuff falls. But like you said, usually in the long run, you're, you're glad it happened. <laughs> oh. Well, Paul, we have a few things that I want to announce before we we move on to the what are you reading. First, for the second podcast in a row, we have lost someone in the book community that I think both of us would want to remark on. Uh, Hilary Mantel has passed mm-hmm. away. And the thing that I think is a little bit weird here is I haven't really ever read her books. I've read the first 100 or 200 pages of Wolf Hall several times, really like it. And I, I kind of feel like it, it will one day be one of those reading experiences that I value. Mm-hmm. And yet she still feels like a part of my reading life. I've read a lot of her articles. I always thought she was pleasant to listen to as she supported, you know, um, smaller authors. Uh, I don't think she ever really considered herself you know, a celebrity star from what I heard, you know, I don't know her. Right. Um, And her presence in the Booker community for the last, you know, decade and a half or so has been something that I've looked forward to, to, and now she's gone. And that's, that's, you know, very sad. I am a little bit shocked that I feel this way, having never met her, never read any of her books, but just from her appearances and things like that, she's made an impact on me. I know. And with both her and Javier Maria's um, so young, you know, like I think mm-hmm. she was 70. She was 70 and he was 72. I mean, uh, these in this day and age, that's a very yeah. young. So I understand that she had had some illness some kind of chronic illness and stuff like that. So maybe to some people, but I still get the impression this was very unexpected despite that. So I, I don't want to spread rumor, but I heard that she had a stroke. Okay. Yeah. Um, but I don't know if I heard that from an official source. I yeah. I assume it wasn't just someone, you know, I'm, I'm not like Twitter friends with a bunch of uh, wingnut literary conspiracy theorists who just right. spread falsehoods online for fun. But it right. could have been misreported somewhere along the line. Yeah. But that's what I heard. Yeah. Well, like you said, it is sad. And I know that we had just mentioned her, I think, during our Epic Books episode. And we've probably mentioned her other times. I don't remember mm-hmm. if we mentioned her during, um, you know, the the bucket list or some of those, but yeah, like same as you, I feel very strongly having only read, I did read one short story collection of hers a few years ago, but I, I've, I have all three of the Cromwell books and they're sitting there all in a row waiting for me. And I've kind of been saving them, you know, Mm -hmm. for some day, like you said, and have yet to get to them, but yeah, I still feel it very strongly having not yet, you know, really immerse myself in her world. Well, and like you said last week with uh, Javier Marias, it's sad when a, an author's passing is the reason that you finally get into their work, but I do want to pull out and finally read Wolf Hall. I've been wanting to do that for a long time. It's just one of those projects that's big. I kind of feel like I know I'm going to like it, so 
what's the point of starting it right now? I know. <laughs> There's all these mysteries that I don't know how I'm going to feel. Exactly. <laughs> and I think despite the fact that I've enjoyed plenty of historical fiction in my life. There's something about that, that I keep telling myself, you have to be in the right mood to kind of jump into this whole huge, you know, historical epic of three giant Mm. books. And it's probably not true because there's plenty of examples in the past of me loving those types of books. But I think for some reason, that's one of those things that's kind of been holding me back a little bit too. Oh, and I love that time period. Um, So yeah, I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm excited for that, but yeah, you know, it's really sad wish to um, offer thanks, I guess, for the work that she did and for the attitude with which she did it. Sometimes a little feisty and uh, high-spirited, but usually, I think, in good faith and and uh, it was valuable. Absolutely. Um, and then I, I did mention that we did the bonus episode for Patreon. I did also want to mention thanks to uh, new Patreon supporter Jerry Faust. We appreciate it very much, Jerry. Uh, you've been you know, supporting us with comments and, and all of that for such a long time. We appreciate that kind of support as well, but thank you so much for, for your support on Patreon. I hope you like the, the bonus episodes that come out every month. And I hope that you like getting these episodes a little bit early, you know, get a head start on them in the week. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Jerry. It was fun. He told us that he had subscribed and he had a comment immediately on our bonus episodes. So it was like, <laughs> like you said, he's always so supportive in various ways. So we really appreciate it. Yeah. And then for everybody, again, just a reminder of the newsletter. That's where we put our show notes and the announcement that the, the show is out. You can subscribe to that. It is completely free. And we're going to start trying to figure out other things we can throw in there without increasing our workload too much. You know, maybe something about a book that's coming out that week or within the next few weeks or has just come out that we each would would recommend without writing a full review or anything like that, just something so that people are, are there. So look for that this time in the newsletter. We'll each just have a book with a little tiny blurb, maybe even just the publisher's blurb that we're like, that's exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, this is one that we're looking forward to and maybe others will be too. So, all right, should, Paul, go ahead. I was going to say there should be plenty of choices heading into this season. Cause yes. it seems like there's so many great things on, on the verge of coming out. Yes, indeed. There's it's October first, and there there are a lot this this month mm-hmm. um, that are that are on their way, including a new one by Cormac McCarthy, our our first author focus episode. Can you believe it? It's been I how know. long? Oh. Fifteen years. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm so excited for it. And then he has a second one coming out within a couple months later. So mm-hmm. the wait has been worth it. Yeah, I'm not sure how I f- how ex- I'm excited. But I am curious how we will all receive it. Is he going to be one of those writers who, after 15 years, comes out with something so new that we aren't we aren't prepared to enjoy it? <laughs> I do wonder about that too. Well, It'll be for later generations to, exactly. to figure out. <laughs> well, especially because the passenger. I mean, it's been like I've heard whispers about this book specifically for years and years, maybe even a decade, and so mm-hmm. it's hard not to have high expectations just based on all these you know, rumors and these hidden Wikipedia links and all these different things that I've been kind of <laughs> dorking out about for the past few years. And so to, to finally have it coming out, it's, it, I don't know what to expect. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll know soon enough. I think. I know. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, what have you been reading, Paul? Well, big news. I, uh, last night finished the brothers Karamazov. Ah. Yeah. Loved it. Loved it. Loved it. It was the whole thing I loved, and, and as I've mentioned before, like the first half I feel like is kind of a good 
steady buildup and it lays out kind of the structure and the philosophy of the book. And then the second half, I feel like once certain events take place, it turns into like almost a different book in some ways, because there's all kinds of, you know, murder mystery. And then there's a huge court drama and all these different things going on. So it was amazing. Like the second half in particular was, you know, kind of almost a page turner. So that was an interesting surprise and, and very fun. I really liked it. Um, so many great characters and I really liked without giving it away the way it ended it. it it's one of those books where it feels very modern. You know, some of the things that you expect, like I think by now most of us don't expect them, but I guess like when the average non-reader thinks of a classic, they might think of like certain tropes or like everything getting wrapped up neatly with a bow or different things like that. And, you know, the more you read, the more you realize that's not true. And that was definitely the case in this one where I was just like, wow, I mean, that just the way that he left certain characters and certain story arcs and everything was very interesting. It's one of those that's going to keep me thinking for quite a while. So, yeah, finish that one. And And now you're taking the month off. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Just going to read Archie comics for the next month. (laughs) No, I, uh, not surprisingly, instantly started another one. So I just started the, um, in the heart of the sea by Nathaniel Philbrick. Um, just my love of Moby Dick. And a few years ago I read Nathaniel Philbrick also wrote a book and I don't have it in front of me. I think it's called why, why read Moby Dick or something like that. And it was, it's just a little slim book, but it kind of goes into a mix of the history and the art of Moby Dick and why he loves it personally and why he feels like it's so powerful and so having read that and and then just loving Moby Dick, I've had this book on my shelf for a long time. So I was just going to read a really quick passage from the introduction that'll just give you a taste of one of those where, again, I dare you to listen to this and not want to pick it up and read it. So this is a, another ship sees this ship coming into dock and it says the ship's captain, the 37 year old Zimri Coffin, trained his spyglass on the mysterious craft with keen curiosity. He soon realized that it was a whaleboat, double ended and about 25 feet long but a whaleboat unlike any he had ever seen. The boat's sides had been built up by about half a foot. Two makeshift masts had been rigged, transforming the rowing vessel into a rudimentary schooner. The sails, stiff with salt and bleached by the sun, had clearly pulled the boat along for many, many miles. Coffin could see no one at the steering oar. He turned to the man at the dolphin's wheel and ordered, Hard up the helm. Under Coffin's watchful eye, the helmsman brought the ship as close as possible to the derelict craft. Even though their momentum quickly swept them past it, the brief seconds during which the ship loomed over the open boat presented a sight that would stay with the crew the rest of their lives. First they saw bones, human bones, littering the thwarts and floorboards, as if the whaleboat were the seagoing lair of a ferocious man-eating beast. Then they saw the two men. They were curled up in opposite ends of the boat, their skin covered with sores, their eyes bulging from the hollows of their skulls, their beards caked with salt and blood. They were sucking the marrow from the bones of their dead shipmates. And so it goes on, but I was like, holy cow. Like, even if you know, I mean, I think most people probably know generally the story of the Essex, but reading that, you know, he's such a good writer and um, just that's how he starts. And then obviously he goes back and traces the history of what happened. But yeah, just really enjoying revisiting his writing. He's an excellent writer. I don't know if you've read anything by him mm-hmm. or maybe even this one, but um, he's one of those that, can write narrative nonfiction in such a way that it really does feel compelling, but his research is impeccable and like, but he, he weaves it in 
to the story where it doesn't feel like he's going off on these. Like he'll, he'll mm-hmm. start to tell the story of the people of Nantucket and their background, but he does it in such a way where it doesn't feel like dry or anything like that. It's, it's really good. So anyway, starting that. And then you usually I'll have that, that when I'm listening to an audiobook, and then having just finished Mr. Dostoevsky yesterday, I haven't yet decided what else I'm going <laughs> to read, but one of those periods we talked about, like I think you had in our last episode where you, yeah. Had that blank slate, which is always fun. Well, you put on Instagram, you know, you said that you're going to finish the brother, brothers Karamazov and that mm-hmm. you're reading this, uh, this, uh, in the heart of the sea. And then you had an enigmatic and with an ellipsis. And I mm-hmm. wasn't sure if that was just, I'm, I've got that blank slate or if yep. there was some mystery that, I, you know, we oh. were supposed to all kind of be like, Ooh, no, it, nothing so intriguing. <laughs> what is he reading now? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to read all of the great Russian novels right in a row. No, <laughs> I think it's, it's more definitely the, the latter or the former, I guess, where it's just kind of enjoying that period of deciding what to read next. I'm, I'm probably going to yeah. pick up, uh, I mentioned it during our Patreon episode that when I was in Las Vegas, I picked up too cold for snow by mm-hmm. Jessica. Owl. And that's the one that's calling to me. It's it's short though. So that in theory, if I have some time today, I could probably finish today. So yeah, just enjoying that period of looking at my shelves and, you know, deciding yeah. what to do next. But that how about fun. What are you reading? So I have two that I've recently started and there's, it's for a reason. Um, I checked out on Libby, my cousin, Rachel, Oh, to yeah. to read, but I have to read it on my phone. It doesn't give me any other options for reading it. Mm. I probably I'm probably just going to have to go buy a physical copy, uh, but because I checked it out on my phone and I was traveling yesterday and thought I don't want my phone to die at noon because I'm reading My Cousin Rachel by Daphne du Maurier, I did pick up just a a sci-fi uh, paperback, you know, mar- mass market paperback of John Scalzi's Old Man's War. I bought this a little bit ago, probably when I had some birthday money in the summer or something like that. And so I started it and I'm enjoying it, Paul. (laughs) It's pretty fun. And it was fun to just have this little pocket sized book to carry around yesterday and barely read. You know, I didn't have a bunch of time to read, but I'm intrigued. I'm about 50 pages into it, 56 pages into it. And here's where it starts. He just says, I did two things on my 75th birthday. I visited my wife's grave, then I joined the army. <laughs> wow. So it's quite a, a pretty fun start. Yeah. And what what it is is the earth, you know, it's it's part of a more uh intergalactic uh group. You know, there are aliens and and other worlds and we know about that, but also lots of battles, I guess. And people when they turn 75 have the option of basically becoming officially dead on earth in order to go join the war where they're, you know, promised to, to kind of last a couple of years and then they get another world or something like that, or get to settle in somewhere else. Hmm. But they don't have a lot of clarity of what that means. They don't know if it means they're made young. They think they kind of think that is it, you know, it's a promise of a new life and being young, but they don't know. Maybe it's just because they're better cannon fodder. You know, they really don't know. And so that's, that's where I'm at is the beginning where they're getting people a bunch of these old people sitting around having breakfast in their first few days and wondering what's coming. So wow. it's kind of fun. Yeah. It sounds like it was that one that you had had any background on or did you pick it up on a whim? I picked it up on a whim. I've just heard that Scalzi is a good 
author, a good sci-fi mm-hmm. author. I think he's won the Hugo once or twice. Okay. Maybe even the Nebula. Maybe, maybe every, you know, <laughs> I don't know. I don't follow those as much as I kind of would like to, mm-hmm. but, but yeah, it's a, uh, it's one that I just had heard a little bit about and it's part of a series of these little paperbacks. I mean, I think they're bigger books too, you know, you can buy them in hardback, but um, I like that they come in this, in this format so that I can tote them around for the next yeah. few months. No, it's always interesting because I tend to, you know, most of the books that we buy, I think, are um, in that, uh, I'm spacing on the name, not the trade paperback, but the uh, the larger format, mm-hmm. you know, book. And, and But like growing up, so many of the things I read were those little mass market paperbacks. And now when I go back and read them, they feel kind of clunky and bulky. But at the same time, it's mm-hmm. nice. It's kind of like books of poetry where you can kind of stick it in your pocket, like you said, and just mm-hmm. carry it around with you. So, yeah. Well, oh, cool. man. I loved carrying around those Mistborn books in my, I would, I would put mm-hmm. them in my pocket and take my kids. I took them to Lagoon, a kind of a, an amusement park here last year. And they're doing all the rides. It's just mm-hmm. me and my two oldest sons. And so I would often not go on the ride and would just find a shady spot and sit and read, put it in my pocket. If I went on the roller coaster, I could put it in my pocket. You know, nice. <laughs> it was really, really fun. Um, and I have gotten back into where I enjoy that size of book mm-hmm. as well. Cause I agree with you at first. It was like, this is it was like a little brick or something, mm-hmm. but now I'm, I'm, I'm back. I'm a fan. Yeah. Nice. It turns out it was just me. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing at used bookstores and everything. If you do get back into those, man, there are just shelves and mm-hmm. shelves of those types of books. Some of them older, some of them newer, but you know, it cuts off an entire part of the bookstore. If you don't care for that <laughs> format, cause it's definitely a big chunk of a lot of them. So I don't want to neglect, though, my cousin Rachel, because it is very, very good, Paul. I'm not very far into it yet, but man, Daphne du Maurier, this might come as a shock. She's quite the storyteller. (laughs) (laughs) I I am really, I really love the tone. I love the, the, just, I don't know, we've talked about this before, but how refreshing to be in the hands of a great storyteller, Mm -hmm. not just a great writer. But someone who is just leading you by the nose, you know, she's put, she knows exactly what she's doing. She knows the direction you're going to go and how to entice you to go that way. It's, it's really good. And so here's, here's the opening paragraph, just in case, you know, you're, you're thinking, what do I want to read after um, Too Cold for Snow? Yeah. They used to hang men at four turnings in the old days. Not anymore, though. Now, when a murderer pays the penalty for his crime, he does so up at Bodmin. After a fair trial at the Assizes, that is, if the law convicts him before his own conscience kills him, it is better so, like a surgical operation, and the body has decent burial, though a nameless grave. When I was a child, it was otherwise. I can remember, as a little lad, seeing a fellow hang in chains where the four roads meet. His face and body were blackened with tar for preservation. He hung there for five weeks before they cut him down. And it was the fourth week that I saw him. He swung between earth and sky upon his gibbet, or, as my cousin Ambrose told me, betwixt heaven and hell. Heaven he would never achieve, and the hell that he had known was lost to him. Ambrose prodded at the body with his stick. I can see it now, moving with the wind like a weather vane on a rusty pivot, a poor scarecrow of what had been a man. The rain had rotted his breeches if not his body, and strips of worsted drooped from his swollen limbs like pulpy paper. 
It was winter, and some passing joker had placed a sprig of holly in the torn vest for celebration. Somehow, at seven years old, that seemed to me the final outrage, but I said nothing. Ambrose must have taken me there for a purpose, perhaps to test my nerve, to see if I would run away or laugh or cry. As my guardian, father, brother, counselor, as in fact my whole world, he was forever testing me. We walked around the gibbet, I remember, with Ambrose prodding and poking with his stick, and then he paused and lit his pipe and laid his hand upon my shoulder. There you are, Philip, he said. It's what we all come to in the end. Some upon a battlefield, some in bed, others according to their destiny. There's no escape. You can't learn the lesson too young. But this is how a felon dies. A warning to you and me to lead a a sober life. We stood there side by side, watching the body swing as though we were on a jaunt to to Bodmin Fair, and the corpse was old Sally to be hit for coconuts. See what a moment of passion can bring upon a fellow, said Ambrose. Here is Tom Jenkin, honest and dull, except when he drank too much. It's true his wife was a scold, but that was no excuse to kill her. If we killed women for their tongues, all men would be murderers. I wished he had not named the man. Up to that moment, the body had been a dead thing without identity. It would come into my dreams, lifeless and horrible. I knew that very well from the first instant I had set eyes upon the gibbet. Now it would have connection with reality and with the man with watery eyes who sold lobsters on the town quay. He used to stand by the steps in the summer months, his basket beside him, and he would set his live lobsters to crawl along the quay in a fantastic race to make the children laugh. It was not so long ago that I had seen him. Anyway. Wow. <laughs> so Damn. much happens in that. This Ambrose, his cousin, I don't know. And that's not even his cousin, Rachel. But I think I know what people mean when they say this one's more sinister than Rebecca. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Wow. I mean, I, I chose Rebecca as one of my op- favorite openings, but that one could have definitely ranked for either <laughs> one of us, I think, too. Yeah, she's amazing. I I say that based only on having read Rebecca twice. And I was kind of following along with a few social media conversations you were having about this book and some other ones of hers and realizing I really need to start exploring more of her stuff. I have the NYRB. Is it Don't Look Now? Is that the name of that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that short story collection. I That's the only other one I have right now besides Rebecca, but you may have just inspired me to change that. Well, the thing that was really encouraging to me is that there really wasn't any consensus on what her best books are. Yeah. There were plenty of people who said books I don't think I've even heard of before. Yeah, me too. As, as being, you know, her best and worth worth picking up. This one's my favorite, and I thought, wow, this is this is really cool. And this happens all the time. You know, we find know. an author with a lot of great books, but it's always exciting. <laughs> That's really exciting. I'm going to have to definitely check that one out because that sounds really good. Maybe perfect for the season too. I again, I'm not too far, uh, but. It's yeah. still quite twisted, you know, as I'm where I'm at. It hasn't softened yet, you know, into a nice, pleasant uh, English, uh, you know, family get together. <laughs> well, based on on Rebecca alone and what I know about her, I don't imagine that it will. That's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Paul. Well, we are going to talk today about fictional places that we wish were real. Before I do that, though. Let's announce to readers what we're doing in the next episode in case anybody wants to join in. Yeah. It is coming out toward the end of October, This ne- our next episode. 
And we are going to be talking about scary books that kept us up at night or some such title like that. And we're going to do that in general, but we're also going to read a few short stories and talk about them just on the side, you know, a little Mm -hmm. bit of a little bit of dessert or cream on top or something like that. Mm -hmm. Some things to reference and have fun with as we go through the month of October. And I chose a story by Edith Wharton. Paul chose a story by Robert Aikman. And then we went together to choose an Edgar Allan Poe story. So for Edith Wharton, we're going to be reading her ghost story afterward. And a lot of her ghost stories have great openings as well that just really pull you in. It's so fun to get pulled into her world. And so I'm looking forward to that and hope that folks will be able to join us on that. Uh, Paul, do you want to tell us what we're reading from Robert Aikman? Sure. So the the story we're going to read from Robert Aikman is the titular story, Compulsory Games, from that collection that came out recently from NYRB Classics. And I don't know much about any of the stories in this particular collection. I read his other collection, Cold Hand in Mine, and um, talked about it, one of the Mm -hmm. stories, The Hospice, in a recent uh, episode. But yeah, just digging around the internet and then I went to our old friend, Bill Ryan, who's a, a longtime Robert Aikman fan and asked him what some of the best stories out of that collection were. And that was one of the ones he mentioned. So that's the one we're going to go with compulsory games. Well, I'm glad we have his expertise too. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Bill, I've always loved, I know, I don't, I don't think he's done it for a while, but for years he would do, um, ho- you know, horror story October. I can't remember what he called it, mm-hmm. where he would review a horror book or novel or story every day for the month of October. And yeah. that was a lot of fun. He's a that great, was. he has such great insights and a great way of writing about these things. He does. Yeah. I miss that. He, he did that, like you said, for years and years and he's mm-hmm. an excellent writer. Anybody who doesn't follow him, I would definitely encourage it's the, kind of face you hate or the face you hate. I can't remember, but Bill Ryan is his mm-hmm. name. Yeah. Yeah. And then for Edgar Allan Poe, we're going with a classic, the cask of Amontillado. Um, such a great story. And one that I'll talk about this again next week, but one that I would use to kind of whet the appetites of my literature students when I used to teach um, in college, because they all liked to read but I don't think they all had a great perspective on older things that they could be just a blast to read. And so to throw them into the hands of this, again, amazing storyteller Mm -hmm. who could just guide you through this creepy story perfectly. uh, They all, I don't remember anybody who didn't think after the Casca of Amontillado, that was just an amazing pull me through, you know, <laughs> the whole way uh, kind of story. So we'll, yeah. we'll be doing that one. I'm excited for that one too. And looking at it, I had not realized, because I read it years and years ago, I did not remember quite how short it was. It's amazing because my mm-hmm. memory of it, you know, I have some very detailed memories of it. And then looking back, I was like, wow, he packed all of that into mm-hmm. not very many pages. We would kind of talk about that. Like, how did he do this? Let's mm-hmm. Let's start looking at this now. So you all liked it. It's very short. How did he make this such a memorable, compelling, uh, suspenseful story? And it was it was so much fun. So I'm looking forward to talking about it again. Yeah, I am too. It'll be fun. So yeah, we welcome everybody. If you if one or all of those appeal to you, feel free to read along and you know send mm-hmm. in any thoughts you have, and we'll see what we can do. As well as are the, what are some stories or books that 
kept you up at night. Yeah. So. All right, Paul. Our topic at hand now. Welcome to it. I'm excited to do this. This was my idea. Mm-hmm. Um, I appreciate you going along with it. But we're talking fun. about fictional places that we wish were real. Now, there are some that are just givens. And we're going to use those here at the beginning to talk about what we mean by this and some of the factors that we we thought of. And then we're going to end, as per usual, each listing three places. I have no idea what you picked. I don't think you know what I picked. Mm-mm. So we might overlap a little bit or, you know, I don't know. But I'm, I am very excited to, to get in on this. Uh, but yeah, the, the givens, right? I mean, I, I did Google fictional places you wish were real. And I can't think of a single list that didn't have Middle Earth on it. Yep. I mean, who who wouldn't want to go and run around the Shire for uh, uh, for, for the fall, or exactly. visit visit um, any of these these you know Rivendell, you know, to see its beautiful waterfalls again in the fall, preferably. Yeah, <laughs> always in the fall. <clears throat> I yeah, wouldn't I was... even mind going to the Mines of Moria on um, a very safe, you know, uh, little hiking trip for a yeah. few hours just a to guide... see it. A guided expedition with like a fully armored dwarf to keep you safe. <laughs> yes. Yes, no, exactly. That was one I was going to. Yeah, absolutely. Because there's so many choices too. Like you said, it's Middle Earth. But mm-hmm. within Middle Earth, as I was thinking about it, obviously my first thought was Bag End because what we've talked about before, the you know, the food and the, the beer and the tunnels and all the doors and everything is just so cozy. But I, I remember there was this one sentence about um, Elrond's house. And it says his house was perfect, whether you liked food or sleep or work or storytelling or singing or just sitting and thinking best or a pleasant mixture of them all. And I was like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that covers it all. What else could you want? And that's kind of a thing with the other main, the main one that comes up on every list, which is something in Harry Potter, you know, Hogwarts, for example. Mm-hmm. And so I thought this was a good one to use to talk about this because yeah, Hogwarts. Who wouldn't want to go and, and have fun in Hogwarts for a while? But it's because J.K. Rowling and and J.R.R. Tolkien, they do a good job making you feel like you could live there and have a pleasant life because it isn't just the magic of Hogwarts. It's not just the stories. It's that who wouldn't want to go and spend a nice evening reading by the fire in the Gryffindor common room? Mm-hmm. You just feel like that's, that sounds so appealing. And has nothing to do with the story. Who doesn't uh, love the abundance of the Great Hall feasts, you know, and being able to sit down and have all these, you know, the magic's part of it. But up above you, you've got the great atmosphere of the ceiling that changes for weather. You know, you've got the 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 bustle of it all. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all of those things just feel like a place where you could spend time. Same with Middle Earth, you know, like Bag End. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, the best part of the Hobbit movies for me is when he sits down and before the dwarves appear, he goes and opens his larder and makes himself a dinner. Yeah. I'm like, yes, this yeah. is perfect. Look at that. I don't even like fish all that much, but I would totally love to have your larder and I would make myself a good trout, you know, or something like exactly. that. It's just, it, it has nothing to do with the story. It's that they, they create these places that feel like a, the perfect ideal life mm-hmm. somehow. I don't know. Yeah, no, I agree. It's amazing. Like I was thinking about the part where Bilbo's out on his front porch, like smoking his pipe uh-huh. and Gandalf comes up and just so cozy, so nice, you know, the the perfect end to a, a day. Or I even asked my 
youngest son about this because I, you know, told him what we'd be talking about and asked him. And the first thing he mentioned was the Gryffindor common room. Oh, so, uh-huh. and we hadn't even brought it up. So like you said, <laughs> that appeals to people of different ages too. It's not like it's just us looking back with nostalgia or something like that. I think it's, mm-hmm. it's amazing when they capture these, it's, it's a very common human experience that they're, they're after. Um, yeah, it's, it's really cool. A couple other ones that it's funny because I was thinking about this, like a lot of them do tend to be in either fantasy or children's novels. Mm-hmm. And we can talk about maybe why that is. But um, another one that I thought about was like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, you know, it has a sinister edge to it in some ways, which I don't know if that plays into it, the adventure, I guess. But, you know, thinking about like when they first walk in and there's just all these halls and all these different doors that go off into all these mysterious rooms and Obviously, the chocolate room in particular is very appealing because everything's edible and there's the big chocolate Mm -hmm. waterfall that mixes the river and everything. So even though I'm not a sweet tooth, there's no way you can read that and not want to be there and like, you know, (laughs) enjoying that. So that was another one that came to mind for me. But you could eat the grass. Exactly. You could eat the grass. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And, you know, but I was thinking like you talked about the power of these authors to create a place because even though, you know, Charlie Bucket's home is you know they're they have no money they're very poor they all live together in this tiny little hovel even that Roald doll makes so appealing you know all the grandparents all all of them piled in the same bed and everything like when you read about it in theory that should be a pretty miserable experience but somehow he manages to even make that cozy so it's a lot of it is the author's skill in creating these places that appeal to you it's pretty interesting yeah it's it's a, I, I do think that it's it's great to get into these worlds. They're often ones that you want to to revisit just because they do create a sense of comfort. Again, kind of independent of the fun story that might might be going on as well. Mm-hmm. There's something about this time of year that I think makes people want to read Harry Potter. Yeah. You know, and, and around the holidays too, because there's Christmas in the Gryffindor common room. There's those moments of quiet, I guess. It isn't just adventure. Mm-hmm. They, they these folks take the time to describe setting and why that setting offers their characters respite or um you know protection or security mm-hmm. or comfort and so we get so much of the roundness of the characters as well in in all of that i um it it's fun there are some others that came up that probably wouldn't have made my list but i totally understand them like wonderland is one also mm-hmm. that came up kind of a fantasy mm-hmm. uh, realm. A little, always been a little bit too bizarre for me. Yeah. Um, plus, it, it it always has felt a little bit artificial. You know, that's more like a bunch of of fun things that happen, but again, maybe without taking the time to make you feel like, oh, I could I could sit down. Unless you're talking about Alice at the beginning before she's gone down the rabbit hole, you know, taking a nap in the the garden. Yes. Then I'd, I'd like to go to her garden and, and, and read, you know, as a kid again Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and have that, that kind of fun dream. Um, and the hundred acre wood as well. Mm-hmm. Um, just a lot of fun with that. But why, why do you think it is that it's children's books or fantasy books that, tend to come up on these lists. I'm not saying that's what we'll pick pick for ours. And I do have some examples of ones that aren't. Yeah, but, I do too. But definitely this was, you know, on the lists. Yeah. It was hard to find too. one where this wasn't it. And or Westeros from the, you know, 
people want to see these places yeah. and see, I'm curious about that. I don't want to see that place. Everybody dies. Um, <laughs> no, well, I've never I, read them or seen it. So I, I assume they're pretty, pretty grim. I don't, yeah. didn't put it on mine either, but <laughs> I would think, okay. So I think for fantasy, I think one of the reasons is because often I was thinking about this with all of them, the Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, and then a couple more that I'll mention here in a second. Often they're kind of like these little oases you know, the parts that pe- the, that people mention are safe spots within a world of danger mm-hmm. or adventure. So like in The Hobbit, you know, they're going off on this big adventure. You know, Hobbiton is a place to return to or like Rivendell is this stop along the way where they are just about out of food and they're exhausted and they've been going through all these dangerous events and they finally reach Rivendell and they get, you know, two weeks to just kind of fatten up their ponies and, you know, relax and sing and all these things. So I think that's part of it is like, it's an oasis of peace or um, restoration within a bigger adventure. And then as far as like for kids, I think a lot of it is just adults looking back with nostalgia on, Mm -hmm. I think kids books are so good at creating those safe and cozy places. And, you know, as, as a, yeah, as an adult, Yeah, looking back on that, you know, not only do you have what's in the book, but you probably have often some memories of yourself in a safe place. If your parents read it to you or you read it to yourself when you were young, you know, it kind of creates this this double memory. So that would be my thought on that, because another one that I thought of was the Chronicles of Narnia mm-hmm. and both uh, Tumnus's house at the beginning <clears throat> when Lucy ends oh, yeah. up there. You know, it goes dark after that. But at the very beginning, that's like one of her first experiences in Narnia. And it's like sitting by the fire and having tea and there's books on the you know, mantle and all that, or even the beaver's house. It's a very different experience, but it's, it's again, it's kind of this safe spot with hiding them from danger. And it's a very rustic and barren, not barren, but I guess, you know, there's not a lot of creature comforts, but it's like good food and good food. You know, yep. That's a common theme. Yeah. Probably some fish there too. Um, so those would be some of my thoughts is, as to why these things appeal. Um, I mean, there's one more that I thought of, hopefully I'm not going to, I don't think this will, I don't think you'll against. get mine, but yeah. if you do, that's okay. So Laura Ingalls Wilder throughout her books, there's these scenes that she is so good. And there's one in particular, I was just going to read. So it's the whole family often, in winter or, or maybe mm-hmm. not even in winter, but just gathered together. And it says when the fiddle had stopped singing, Laura called out softly. What are days of old Lang Syne, Pa? They are the days of a long time ago. Laura, Pa said, go to sleep now. But Laura lay awake a little while listening to Pa's fiddle softly playing into the lonely sound of the wind in the big woods. She looked at Pa sitting on the bench by the hearth, the firelight gleaming on his brown hair and beard and glistening on the honey brown fiddle. She looked at Ma gently rocking and knitting. She thought to herself, this is now. She was glad that the cozy house and Ma and Pa and the firelight and the music were now. They could not be forgotten, she thought, because now is now. It can never be a long time ago. And I just Hmm. liked that. It kind of encapsulated. There was quite a few as I was kind of flipping through those books, quite a few examples I could have picked. But I think those books do a really good job of, you know, creating these safe places and the comfort of family and that idea of like when you're a kid, you're laying there, you know, kind of drifting off to sleep and you can hear the grown-ups doing things in the other room. And it's like this feeling of, mm-hmm. of comfort. So, you know, that was another one that came to mind to me. Like, obviously there's a lot of things about those books that I would not want to go back and live through. Right. But those moments of, of peace and comfort have always really appealed to me. 
it's interesting because you've you've struck on a different line, I think, there. Places we wish were real. But those are kind of real, right? Yeah. I mean, and I I did I do have some examples of that that I want to maybe get into now because there is this sense of the mood is what you want to create and relive. Mm-hmm. You could have had that in another story, perhaps, or another place, or maybe it's just the the feel of of that comfort of a, a family together that you can have in you know uh, Truman Capote's A Christmas Memory, for example. Mm-hmm. That's maybe a little bit generic in terms of the place. Uh, it has some things that are familiar to us who have grown up in this part of the world. You know, it feels like home to an extent. Mm-hmm. But the home that you imagine is going to be different from the home I imagine because there's maybe not so much in there about the specific place. It's it's a mood. It's or or something to do with the type of story that it's telling that makes you wish that that place were real. Mm-hmm. And the the way that I was thinking about this is my wife, her suggestion or her her choice is Pemberley from Pride and Prejudice. Mm. And my first thought was, yeah. But that's also kind of like a real place. I mean, it just it, it's fictional because it's Pemberley, but it is a real English manor. You know, the the place is, that place exists over and over again in in England. We've visited many of them. You know, yeah. So I sent her a gif of Colin Firth getting out of the lake, or you know, <laughs> like, I know why you want Pemberley to be. Right. I, I, I exactly. do get it. Um, and I thought, how much of this is about the the story that you want to inhabit in these places mm-hmm. versus the place itself is what you want to inhabit? You know, earlier we're talking about Middle Earth. I could live in Middle Earth and go visit it without knowing anything about the story that is told in the Lord of the Rings or the Hobbit, yeah. because these places feel like, you know, unique, unique like that. But are there places where you want to have them to be real because of the characters and the story that is in place there? And I think something like the books by Laura Ingalls Wilder or Pemberley might be a more along that scale. I don't, I'm not wanting to talk, uh, you know, for my wife, for example. There may be other reasons, mm-hmm. um, but that's. I thought there's kind of two things here that it could it could encapsulate. No, I thought about that too, because one of my choices that I'll get to later touches on this same topic. And I think to me, I was thinking about whether or not it would apply and the way I would, not that I need to justify it, but the way I would justify it or explain it would be like, if you look at a historical fiction, you know, a historical novel in some ways, like you said, it, it did really happen, but it's a place that you wish you could recapture, you know, it's no longer true. So there is some imagination involved for the simple fact of, you know, this, this or some version of this did once exist, but it no longer does. Mm -hmm. And so that's the way I was thinking about it. And like I said, I'll, I'll dig into that a little more when I get to that book, but that could be true to some degree with several of these, like little house on the prairie or maybe Pemberley to some extent, or some of those where, you know, it could be looking back on a different time. And even if it, is based on a real event. There's that fictional aspect because of the fact that it's, you know, looking back and recreating it, I guess. Do you remember that great line at the end of a month in the country? I'm not going to say it perfectly because I don't have the book in front of me, but it's something about remembering that this time was real and we are no longer in it. Mm -hmm. It's not quite like that, but there's definitely that kind of sense yeah, <clears throat> uh, with some of these. And I'm thinking, too, of 
uh, one of the first podcasts I recorded with my brother, Brian, was about Patrick Lee Fermer's, oh, what was the first one of his called? I had it in my mind until I needed to say it, and then it did. Yeah, you know. and I would have had it too, now you're making me forget it. Anyway, the, the very first book of his road trilogy, where he's walking across the first part of Europe, and he stops at a German woman's house, he doesn't know her, mm-hmm. and they're talking, and she's telling him stories uh, about her, and he's drifting off to sleep. Mm-hmm. And he kind of wishes that he hadn't fallen asleep. He wanted to give her attention. I remember my brother Brian saying, "You know what this makes me want to do is go and have our grandma back and go and just sit down mm-hmm. in her living room and listen to her speak, you know, and tell us stories again while we're so comfortable that we can kind of drift in and out, but we yeah. want to hear the story too." That it's a real comfort. I mean, this is kind of butting up now against things like comfort reads or you know things yeah, like think- that. I think there's, mm-hmm. at least for me, there's a connection. There might be people out there who would want to go visit some great battle that happened in a fantasy book or, you know, a sci-fi mm-hmm. shootout. Like that's just <laughs> not my personality. So for me, you know, it probably would tend, tend towards those types of things, comfort. And just that, that book is a time, a time of gifts. A time of gifts. There we are. Yes. And yeah. then the next one's between, anyway, well, great books, great uh, books. Amazing. Yeah, absolutely. So, no, it is interesting. I was thinking about that because I didn't want to keep. And with some of my choices, I tried to branch out because I very easily could have gone all <laughs> kids in comfort or fantasy because that does tend to be, you know, you, you want something that's a very stark contrast to the world that we live in. And I think that there's that's where that comfort part comes in, where when people want to live in a fictional place, it's usually to get away from the things they don't like about their real life. And mm-hmm. so I think that could be one of the reasons where you would be drawn towards things that were, you know, very comforting, like Hobbiton or wherever the case may be, because it's when you're reading, you you want to escape and get away. You know, one reason you would read would be to escape and get away from the things in your real life that are like the harsh realities or something. So yeah, yeah. it's interesting. And I, we deliberately titled this fictional places that we wish were real because we want to be able to go there. And so, yeah, for me too, it does exclude the dangerous places or like, oh, I'd really love to go to this sci-fi world that's, you know, desolate and barren, but people are, people are struggling to get by somehow, you know, Dune or something like that. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I've no desire to go to Dune. I do want to see these places realized. Yeah. I I love seeing, you know, did you see the, the, the new Dune movie? No, I didn't. Oh man, Paul. Talk about a director who has a vision and is able to make it come to life in a way that is completely captivating. And that's Denis Villeneuve, <laughs> his French name. Um, this The Dune movie, I, I wasn't 100% sure I wanted to watch it because, you know, I know the story generally. I've never read the book, but, you know, I, I do know the story and thought maybe that's not so much for me, but he realizes this world in such a an amazing way. If it, and I love seeing that. I do love seeing fictional, dangerous fictional places become realized. <laughs> yeah, you know, but I don't necessarily want them to be real or to go to them myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- those don't show up on my list, even though they're great candidates for fictional places. You do want to see um, brought to life. I guess yeah. is, is the way that I would term that. And Dune, again, you, I do recommend it and watch it on a, a big screen if possible, because it's just, it's so that the texture and the feel of that, of that film is really why I enjoyed it so much. 
Yeah, I'll have to check that out. Yeah, I think, like you said, that that is an imp- important distinction. And there is one of my choices today that probably falls a little bit on the line of that where, yeah, I, I wish it were real, but more because I wish <laughs> there was a place like that in the world, but not necessarily that I'd want to always be in it. Uh, my first one on my list is the same thing. Like, yeah. I kind of wish this were real in our reality, but I, I don't want me to have to go there <laughs> exactly do you think we have the same one no we couldn't have the same one i don't, I think, don't think i don't All think right. the one that i'm talking about is but i don't know we'll see <laughs> there, there could be some crossovers for sure oh that'd be interesting um anything else that you want to kind of go over in general uh before we get into our list and keep talking about this no i think i'm good because i think as we talk about some of these choices we can kind of go further into some of these topics because Several of the things we yeah. mentioned do play directly into these. Where because I did try to think of books outside of like I I didn't think of like the first five or ten that popped to mind. I tried to like take a minute and go beyond that. And so some of yeah. them, you know, some people might say they're a bit of a stretch, but it's because I was trying to think of something that was a little bit different. So we'll see how it goes. <laughs> and, and now I'm worried. I actually just went to the next five that people yeah. will think of. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, Speaking of Archie comics, that's the world. <laughs> um, so I apologize for my dog. Apparently someone is trying to break in has been for the last half hour <laughs> and she's, she's making sure we're all safe, but yeah, she's doing yeah. her job. <laughs> um, anyway, Paul, why don't you go ahead and start us out then and tell, tell us your, the first one you want to talk about. All right. So I'm going to go ahead and dive into the first one that touches on that whole idea of, in some ways, this is a place that does or did exist. So it, it has that historical aspect to it, but I'll explain my thinking on it. And you can you can decide if you think I uh, can justify mm-hmm. it. So it's a, it's a favorite book of yours and one we've talked about before. And it, at first, it might seem a little odd that I choose this, but the book is Butcher's Crossing by John Williams. And so... I will start off and and read the passage that specifically I want to talk about, and then I'll kind of explain it. So as we've talked about, it's this group of people who are going up into the Rocky Mountains to hunt buffalo. And so they have been on this very long journey, and they're going to this specific location that has been kind of scouted out a little bit and is kind of rumored. And so they've been on this arduous journey. It's been tough going, and finally they get there. And so that's what this part is. It says, Miller turned to him. There it is, he said quietly. Take a look. Andrews walked up to him and stood looking where he pointed. For perhaps 300 yards, the trail cut down between the pines, but at that point, abruptly, the land leveled. A long, narrow valley, flat as the top of a table, wound among the mountains. Lush grass grew on the bed of the valley and waved gently in the breeze as far as the eyes could see. A quietness seemed to rise from the valley. It was the quiet, quietness, the stillness, the absolute calm of a land where no human foot had touched. Andrews found that despite his exhaustion, he was holding his breath. He expelled the air from his lungs as gently as he could, so as not to disturb the silence. Miller tensed and touched Andrew's arm. Look, he pointed to the southwest. A blackness moved on the valley, below the dark pines that grew on the opposite mountain. Andrews strained his eyes. At the edges of the patch, there was a slight ripple, and then the patch itself throbbed like a great body of water, moved by obscure currents. The patch, though it appeared small at this distance, was, Andrews guessed, more than a mile in length and nearly a half mile in width. Buffalo, Miller whispered. So, 
anybody who mm-hmm. knows this book knows that <laughs> things quickly do not continue in that vein. And and obviously the reason that they're going up there is to basically wipe out this herd of buffalo. So it gets it gets brutal and dark after that. But the reason that I thought that this one was interesting and, and the reason I chose it was that idea of a place where no human foot had touched. And this idea of nature unspoiled. You know, I know some of that is a myth because there were other people that were there, you know, for many thousands or tens of thousands of years before that. But it's more the idea of, I think, as I get older and just, you know, watching the areas that I love here in Colorado get developed and, you know, these valleys that you have that all of a sudden turn into a subdivision. Or even when you fly out west mm-hmm. over the mountains, you look down and you see reservoirs and, and roads carved into the mountains. For me, this the reason that I think this is an imaginary place that I wish would exist is that specific valley is in his imagination. And it kind of, to me, represents like so many of the things that about the earth that have been kind of, you know, destroyed and wiped out. And I, I really wish that I could go back to a time where, you know, that was still not true where there, I mean, again, there are those places. I'm not saying that it's all doom and gloom, but just that idea of unspoiled nature and kind of before man has kind of begun to wreak havoc on, on nature. So I thought that was, you know, an interesting angle mm-hmm. to take it towards. Yeah, I, I totally support your choice. And it's fun because the cover of the NYRB Classics edition, mm-hmm. that's not a real place. You know, that no. picture is so big and vast and beautiful. And, mm-hmm. you know, you got the big waterfall in the background, the lake in the foreground, mountains that are just towering. It's like you've got a mixture of of the the Himalayas and the Rockies and, you know, the Amazon. <laughs> I, know. I know. It's, no. it's, it's it, larger than life. It's by, mm-hmm. um, the artist is Albert Bierstadt. And mm-hmm. I actually had one of his um, pictures in our house for a while. And actually when I went to the National Archives in Washington, D.C., they have several of his originals there. And oh. they're just stunning because like you said, they're, they're based in reality, but they're clearly fantastical places, but they do yeah. capture that whole idea of just the epicness of specifically the, the American West, but you know, so yeah, anyway, that was the one that came to mind for me. And yeah, great choice. Did you know that there's a new movie out? No. Oh dude. <laughs> I don't know much about it yet. It just had its premiere at the Toronto international film festival uh, earlier this, uh, I guess last month in September Starring Nicolas Cage. Ah. Are you ready for this? (laughs) I don't know that I am. (laughs) I haven't read any reviews. I'm sure they're available, but it does currently have a 73% on Rotten Tomatoes. So Hmm. we, I, I am curious. I am curious. I don't even think that I've seen a trailer or anything to, to let me know if it's going to be totally right. But yeah, talk about, maybe human despoiling something perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe it'll be great. Who knows? I guess I should try to keep an open mind, but I got to say, I don't know that (laughs) I will be seeing that one. I don't know. Unless I, unless you test it out for me and tell me it's amazing. What if I told you Kelly Reichert directed it? See, that would change things. She did not. (laughs) That would be different. It's Gabe Polsky, who is a fairly young uh, director. He's about our age. And I don't, I don't know anything about uh, any work that he's done. I don't even know if he's really done much more than this. May be his his debut film, but he's done documentaries as well. 
So maybe he'll come to it with a sensibility that isn't just, you know, I want to make an adaptation of a, of an NYRB classics book, you know, as they are. <laughs> yeah. Right. Probably not. Yeah. Like I said, I mean, I guess I could, I could be wrong. I should probably keep an open mind, but I am highly skeptical. I'll say that much. Yeah. Well, I'll maybe take one for the team and let you know if, it, <laughs> if I even get a chance to see it in the next, you know, while I'm still thinking about all this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I'll go with um, the one that we were kind of talking about earlier that I wouldn't want to visit this place, mm-hmm. but I still wish it were real. And I'm going to try to explain why that is the case, but maybe you'll get it when I tell you what it is. And it is another NYRB Classics. It is um, it is uh, The Invention of Morel oh. by Adolfo Bioy Casares. That island mm-hmm. that he visits. I'm not going to I'm not going to be able to say too much about it because I don't want to spoil the book for people who haven't read it. But it is a place where he has gone to escape. Um, he's a criminal, and he has gone to this kind of sinister place. He's heard about it from other people who say, "No, you don't go there." Mm-hmm. And he finds a big house and like a museum and. It's kind of this this book pops up as a reference point for like the the, the television series Lost or the video game Mist, mm-hmm. you know, as a as this this island that looks like it's being developed but is now abandoned. You know, it looks like civilization has landed there and it is actually pretty high tech, but no one else is there. There's a swimming pool, there's, you know, just and then there's the jungle kind of out out and about. And one day people are there. And so he's terrified and he runs off down to the swamps. But he doesn't know how long he can stay there and survive. So he kind of starts sneaking around and, you know, sees this beautiful woman that doesn't seem to be scared of him because he's like, oh, I know she must have seen me. And so he starts to involve himself in this world, these people, but something's off. They don't seem to know he's there and he can't seem to interact with them. But it is based on, it isn't just a dream. It is because of the island and because of some things that are going on there. And that's why I wish the place were real. I love these kinds of hidden islands with uh, civilization on them. I do love, you know, I thought Lost didn't really pay off, but I love that, you know, oh, what, there's a, there's a big lighthouse over here that's so cool i love those mysteries you know and mm-hmm. things like that that you could find in these places and i really loved um the video game mist when it came out yeah and so a part of me even though this is a little more sinister than what we were talking about before and again because of what happens i don't want to go there you know i know what happens to you if you step foot on this island <laughs> but mm-hmm. i kind of wish a place like that were in the world and yeah. it's not I don't think oh. anyway. <laughs> yeah, not that we know of. No, that's a great choice. And and for the exact same reasons you said, it's it's not a place that I would want to be personally either because it does have that kind of fever dream creepiness to it. Mm-hmm. But like you said, just the possibility and the mystery of it, to know that that existed somewhere out there would be kind of nice to know. And that's maybe, and I hadn't thought about this until earlier when we were talking, but maybe part of the other reason that I wish this were real is it's, it is still a place where he finds peace and comfort mm-hmm. and nostalgia. And uh, there's a, there's a, that quality of loneliness 
that somehow is also comforting that takes place in this story. You find out what's going on relatively soon. You know, Mm -hmm. the book isn't about the mystery of what's going on. It's about what that means for him as a character. And it's pretty beautiful. I think that the the whole book is, but yeah, yeah, I wish, I wish that Island, you know, just, we're there somewhere and I could go with maybe a hazmat suit on. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or like found footage. Yes, exactly. Oh my gosh. That would be a scary movie. That but there be. is that, I mean, there kind of is that, that, um, uh, there is that movie. Oh my gosh. My, we're, are we doing this too early today, Paul? I we can't must be. seem to, to think of anything today. <laughs> um, what is that French movie that is also strange and people do talk about it being, uh, like this book and kind of based on this book. I will think about this and okay. report back yeah. in a moment. I wish I could help ahead. you, but I don't know. Okay. Well, so I guess I'll go ahead and jump into my my second choice. So this one, again, like I said, I was trying to think of things that weren't just standard, like fantasy or kids books. So I went fairly literal on this one and it's a very specific place. And so in a lot of ways, this I'm sure places like this exist all over the United States right now. Um, but I'm talking about this specific place and, and the way that it made me feel when I read it. And it is from the Jhumpa Lahiri book, The Namesake. And so in this book, there is this guy, Gogol, who is a second generation Indian. His parents came over from India. And so he's kind of making his way in the world and he's getting more and more Americanized and everything, but he still has the pull of the traditional in his family, but he dates this girl and this whole section where he starts to date her. And it's kind of his immersion into her family and kind of their culture and their life. I remember very specifically where I was when I read this, I was in a, we were in a cabin up in the Colorado mountains. And for some reason, this is one of those reading experiences in my life. That's one of the most made the most impression. I think of almost anything I've ever read. And so I'll just read a a few quick sections here. Um, it, again, this is when he first starts to meet her family and he's kind of getting immersed into their life. It says, from the very beginning, he felt effortlessly incorporated into their lives. It is a different brand of hospitality from what he is used to. For though the Ratliffs are generous, they are people who do not go out of their way to accommodate others, assured, in his case correctly, that their life will appeal to him. Gerald and Lydia, busy with their own engagements, keep out of the way. Gogol and Maxine, that's his girlfriend, come and go as they please, from movies and dinners out. He goes shopping with her on Madison Avenue at stores they must get buzzed into for cashmere cardigans and outrageously expensive English colognes that Maxine buys without deliberation or guilt. They go to darkened, humble-looking restaurants downtown where the tables are tiny, the bills huge. Almost without fail, they wind up back at her parents' place. There's always some delicious cheese or pate to snack on, always some good wine to drink. It is in her claw-footed tub that they soak together glasses of wine or single malt scotch on the floor. At night, he sleeps with her in the room she grew up in on a soft, sagging mattress, holding her body as warm as a furnace through the night. And so, you know, there's that part of just like, it's him going into their home and being accepted. And it's, it's not necessarily the materialistic part of it that appeals to me. It's more of like the comfort, the good food, the good wine. He's getting this immersion into this life that he's never had exposure to. And I read this in my early 20s. And I think there was something very appealing about at that age, you're still trying to figure out like, how to be an adult and who you are in the world. And I think that idea of kind of getting 
immersed into this family that accepts you and kind of shows you the ropes of like all these great things that are out there in the world. And this is a good kind of whiskey. You should try it with this cheese, you know, all those kind of things. I think for some reason that really appealed to me, but then there's a little bit later, they go out and visit basically this cabin that they stay in. And it says it is the opposite of how they live in New York. The house is dark, a bit musty, full of primitive mismatched furniture. There are exposed pipes in the bathrooms, wires stapled over door sills, nails protruding from beams. On the walls are clusters of local butterflies, mounted and framed, a map of the region on thin white paper, photographs of the family at the lake over the years. Checkered cotton curtains hang in windows on thin white rod. And then it goes on and it talks about, you know, like, in spite of the fact that there's nothing in particular to do, the days assume a pattern. There is a certain stringency to life, a willful doing without. In the mornings, they wake early to the frenzied chirping of birds when the eastern sky is streaked with the thinnest of pink clouds. Breakfast is eaten by seven on the screened-in porch overlooking the lake where they have all their meals, homemade preserves slathered on thick slices of bread. Their news of the world comes from the thin local paper Gerald brings back each day from the general store. In the late afternoons, they shower and dress for dinner. They sit with their drinks on the lawn, eating pieces of the cheese Gogol and Maxine brought from New York, and watch the sun set behind the mountains bats darting between the pines that soar as tall as 10-story buildings, all the bathing suits hung to dry on a line. Dinners are simple, boiled corn from a farm stand, cold chicken, pasta with pesto, tomatoes from the garden sliced and salted on a plate. So again, this is a pretty literal, I mean, like I said, these places or places like them do exist in the world, Mm -hmm. but this particular fictional version, both kind of the, you know, the cosmopolitan nice you know restaurants and food but going back to this house where there's like this established pattern and some culture they sit around the fire talking about books at night but then that kind of counterbalanced with like this more rustic escape to the lake where they're all just you know part of this daily pattern that takes place it kind of reminds me of the fortnight in september which i just read that idea of like on a on a vacation these patterns kind of establish themselves and you're part of this group so again i don't know if that one is a bit of a stretch because it's not really a fictional place but as far as a place that i've read about in a book that i just i don't know why but it made a huge impression on me when i read it and i still think about it a lot i think jumper lahiri is so good at creating both place and like food and texture i think that's a lot of it is is she made such an impression on me with that particular you know time and place that it's really stuck with me for a long time that's cool i had not not thought about that. I did not read that book, but that's a great example of that particular type of fictional place that yeah that could become real. Yeah, I didn't know if I was pushing the limits a little bit, but hopefully it passes muster in a good way, right? Like that's what we're trying to do in, in to an extent. You know, mm-hmm. we're trying to think about these things so we can maybe draw some lines around them and figure out what what we mean when we're talking about this. Yeah. Well, my next one is again probably takes place. I'm going a little bit out of what I said earlier, it takes place in a world where I probably wouldn't want to live, but I kind of do at the same time. Mm-hmm. But this place within it is that place of security and comfort and just uh, general safety where I thought if I could live there and just stay in the house, I'll be okay. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, this is a uh, 35 Portland row from the series Lockwood and Co. by Jonathan Stroud. That's mm. the house where these ghost hunting children live. It's their headquarters. It's uh, Anthony Lockwood is their the proprietor. You know, he's the proprietor of the business Lockwood and Co. And he's a young adult who is 
very uh, driven to figure out what is going on and to save people from ghosts that are now infecting the world and, and in particular, you know, Great Britain and such. And this is his home, his childhood home. He is an orphan. His parents have both died. And not only that, but also his sister died when they were both very young. So it's just him now uh, in this house full of memories and mysteries because his sister's room, he keeps locked. Um, or maybe it doesn't lock it, but he keep, tells no, no one's to go in there. I actually think he doesn't lock it um, <laughs> now that I think about it. But you're not supposed to go in there. And there are also rooms where his parents had brought a lot of their supplies. They were kind of um, scholars and, and, you know, researchers of the problem, as they call it, and had gone around the world uh, picking out uh, different cultural, different cultures, ways of dealing with ghosts to try and figure things out. And so there's rooms with all of their stuff in it. Um, Lucy, the, the person who is telling our story, you know, she's a young woman, 14 or so she lives up at the top of Portland row and this little tiny room that gives her a lot of comfort. And there's a part in the series where she leaves the company for a while, just feeling guilty and feeling like she, she's not safe for them. And it's so nice when she gets to go back to her little room, you know, eventually Um, it, it just is that great thing. And then they have the kitchen where they make their tea and their, cakes and their sandwiches and all of the various things that they they eat while they talk about um the ghosts and their different assignments and different um you know uh, clients and whatnot Mm -hmm. uh but also where they come to after they get home you know they have to work in the night so they get home at odd hours and they'll sit down together and, and share a little bit of food to rejuvenate themselves before going to bed, you know, rejuvenate their spirits and whatnot. And then come down in the morning to the smells of George Cubbins, uh, you know, cooking up bacon or, mm-hmm. you know, sweetbreads and uh, Holly Monroe does, who does not live there, but works there every day uh, kind of keeps things uh, tidy, but also will bring in things, you know, for them. And they'll share them with their clients as they come in to talk. George, always a little bit worried if the client looks like they're going to eat more than what they really should. You know, <laughs> right. it's, it's such a great place. And it is within a world that I, I love the, the world of Lockwood and co it's, it's kind of an arrested development. And I don't mean the television show. I mean the, the, the concept uh, mm-hmm. London, because the problem begins in like the thirties or forties, and so technology kind of stops at that point. So there's technology and it's, it's, it takes place in relatively contemporary times, but I don't think they have a lot of the technology we have today of like televisions and cell phones. And, you know, they, they just don't have any of that. They're mm-hmm. dealing with ghosts and people shut down their businesses when it gets dark and they're too scared to really be thinking about other things. The technology and the push for research and development has been, researching how to protect yourself from ghosts who who show up at the most inconvenient times and places. Uh, but again, 35 Portland Row is a, is a fairly safe, um, secure place where you can have this, but it does have enough of the sinister elements to keep it exciting too. You know, the mystery yeah. of the sister's room, the mysterious artifacts from other cultures around the world. And, so yeah, I, I love I love these books. We're about done with them with my boys. I know mm-hmm. I've, I've been reading them over the last year, and we're in book five, and it's kind of fun because at night they'll both be like, "Are we going to read some Lockwood and Co?" 
Nice. And they're excited for it. And they'll just go and sit down. They don't ever sit down on the couch <laughs> without a screen on, you know, or something right. like that. They just don't do that very often. So for them to go and just sit down, because to them, I think these books are also telling a great story, but provide that sense of I'm where I'm supposed to be kind of right yeah. now. You know, this is, this is pleasant. This is the way I want to spend my time in the evening. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so much, much gratitude to Jonathan Stroud for creating this world that I love and that I would like t- to be real, as devastating as that would be for humanity. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, humans, this place is really cool. <laughs> yeah, no, it's interesting what you said about the the adv- enough sinister elements to make it an adventure, I think is definitely a theme through some of these, including, you know, um, like Harry Potter and things like that. Cause even as much as um, the castle and the school are Hogwarts is a safe place and it, there's like the sinister element mm-hmm. to it. There's yeah. the, cre- the yeah. creepy hallways or the ghosts flying around or, you know, invaders coming into it. So I think there is something to be said. That's interesting. You know, a lot of these places, it's not just the comfort. There's an element, an extra yeah. element. So yeah, the, the library books that might, bite your hand off or the stairways that might drop you, you know? Yeah. 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 It's exciting. There could be something right around the corner. You just never know. And I've wondered too, how much of my love with Lockwood and co we'll talk about this next week, but I don't really get scared that often of things like this. I don't believe in ghosts. Mm -hmm. My wife, thinks I'm crazy for that. She's like, no, ghosts are objectively real. I don't know how much she's teasing me. Uh-huh. I just don't know. But part of me is <laughs> like, you, you, you can't really, you don't really think that they're ghosts, right? Like, I don't think my house is haunted. I think when something like that happens, I could figure out the reason eventually, you know, I've, right. If I, if ghosts were real, I think I, I think more of us would, would know this, you know, right, right, right. <laughs> but, but I do you. like the story of ghosts. I love mm-hmm. ghost stories. I love the, the potential that they are. Part of me gets a thrill out of these things, you know, um, and maybe we'll talk about that a little bit more next week, but I think part of that is also why I love the world of Lockwood and co because they are these yeah. remnants of the past these unfulfilled dreams and unfulfilled promises of life mm-hmm. are not happy with the way things go. And this is how they manifest themselves. And I kind of love that, that real, I'm glad they're not real, but if any sinister element that lives out there, it was real. I think I'd say, let's let ghosts come. Let's yeah. not let them kill us, but let's let right. them see them. I'd like to see them. No, I'm with you. I, I feel almost exactly the same way. Yeah, no, that's a great choice. I I really enjoyed that first book and I need to get back and spend some more time in that world. But I did notice one more theme through many of these is definitely food that keeps coming up. Oh yeah. Yeah. Jupo here. It came up in Lockwood. So that's funny. Um, (laughs) All right. You ready for me to go on to my third? Yep. This is probably my most like traditional or what I would have expected to go to. It has a little bit of a fantasy element and it is from the Gormenghast novels and specifically the passages I'm going to be touching on are from Titus Grown, which is the first book. And again, this is, you know, we keep repeating ourselves, but I would not, I would not even want to live in this world. I mean, there's no necessarily about it. (laughs) Um, It's not a pleasant place in a lot of ways, but knowing that a place like this existed would be 
a comfort in some ways because it's so interesting. Um, so I'm going to read a quick, forgive me for reading a few passages, but I think Mervyn Peake is one of the most amazing writers. So I, I think I could do it the most justice by reading a few passages. So this is just a quick intro at the very beginning. This is the, the very opening of the book. It says, Gormenghast, that is the main massing of the original stone, taken by itself would have displayed a certain ponderous architectural quality were it possible to have ignored the circumfusion of those mean dwellings that swarmed like an epidemic around its outer walls. They sprawled over the sloping earth, each one halfway over its neighbor, until, held back by the castle ramparts, the innermost of these hovels, laid hold on the great walls, clamping themselves thereto like limpets to a rock. And so it's just, again, that's not appealing, but it's like this really huge castle with like all these buildings all around it. Yeah. And then as we start to get into the actual castle it is one of the most fascinating places i've ever read it it has some hogwarts elements to it i don't know maybe if she was influenced but it has all the the passages and the winding areas and the you know room the halls that go nowhere and these hidden rooms that are locked away and nobody really knows what's going on in them and things like that um and there's this one passage with a girl named fuchsia And so she's one of the people who lives there and she has this area that she goes to and has gone to for years and years. That's kind of her escape. It kind of reminds me of what you were just mentioning from Lockwood, where it's kind of this area that's up at the very tippy top of the castle and it's this hidden away area. So it's called the attic. That's the name of this chapter. So she is grabbing some food and she's heading up to this area and it says, Stretching over the headrail, she grasped her bundle of food and then picked up the candle from near her feet, and ducking her head, crept through the narrow opening and found herself at the lowermost steps of the flight that led upwards in dark spirals. Closing the door behind her, she dragged a bolt into position, and the tremors which she always experienced at this moment of locking herself in took hold of her, and for a moment she shook from head to foot. And then it talks about how she gets this feeling as she's walking up to this area. And I think this passage is just beautiful. It says, as Fuchsia climbed into the winding darkness, her body was impregnated and made faint by a qualm as of green April. Her heart beat painfully. This is a love that equals in its power the love of man for woman and reaches inwards as deeply. It is the love of a man or of a woman for their world, for the world of their center where their lives burn genuinely and with a free flame. The love of the diver for his world of wavering light his world of pearls and tendrils, and his breath at his breast. Born as a plunger into the deeps, he is at one with every swarm of lime-green fish, with every colored sponge. As he holds himself to the ocean's fairy floor, one hand clasped to a bedded whale's rib, he is complete and infinite. Pulse, power, and universe sway in his body. He is in love. And so it talks about that. Then it goes on to a similar passage about a painter, the love of a painter, the love of a gardener working in the soil. And then it says, it was this feeling of belonging to the winding stair in the attic, which Fuchsia experienced as she ran her right hand along the wooden wall, as she climbed and encountered after some time the loose board which she expected. She knew that only 18 steps remained, and that after two more turns in the staircase, the indescribable gray gold filtering glow of the attic would greet her. And so I think that's just beautiful, this anticipation as she's climbing the stairs up to her little secret warren. And then I won't keep going because there's a lot here, but I'll just read a couple more quick passages. Once she gets up there, she's surrounded by all of her childhood toys. And it comes out that she's had like plays with her stuffed animals that she's performed up there and everything. And so it says, silence was there with a loud rhythm. The halls, towers, the rooms of Gormenghast were of another planet. Fuchsia caught at a thick lock of her hair and dragged her own head back as her heart beat loudly 
and tingling from head to foot, little diamonds appeared at the inner corners of her eyes. With what character she had filled this lost stage of emptiness, it was here that she would see the people of her imagination, the fierce figures of her making, as they strolled from corner to corner, brooded like monsters or flew through the air like seraphs with burning wings, or danced, or fought, or laughed, or cried. This was her attic of make-believe, where she would watch her mind's companions advancing or retreating across the dusty floor. So it goes on and on. I mean, I have passages marked. I could probably read for like our entire episode, but whew, I just, everything about that is beautiful to me. It's, it's, and the sad part about that chapter is she's kind of coming to a realization as she spends more time up there that it's kind of coming to an end. She's an adolescent and this is her kind of trying to cling on to those feelings. So there's a real bittersweet quality to it. But as far as just that idea of this is her hidden place that she's come for years and years, everything she loves is up there, you know, all of her toys and stuffed animals and all of her memories of all these plays and things that she's done. And then I also just really love that in this huge giant castle with it's bustling, there's all these people, there's cooks, there's servants, there's creepiness, there's dusty hallways, but she has this little place that maybe nobody else even knows about where she has to climb all these stairs and go through a trap door. And she ends up in the very top of this little tower and it's like her own little secret world. So I don't know that, that passage is one of my very favorites. Oh, I love it. I actually just was re-listening to our episode on great openings mm-hmm. and you, you had some pieces from that as well. Mm-hmm. And there I am saying, oh, I need to get to to this and read this. And I yeah. was like, I really want to do that. And here you are again. Maybe that's what I should try and do over the winter this year or those books. I yeah, think. I think that would be wonderful. I mean, there's three of them. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you decided to only read, say, the first one and then save the other two or something like that, it wouldn't necessarily be a commitment because it is the the collected omnibus version that I have is is a big book. So mm-hmm. I can see that it would be a little intimidating or at least a commitment so you could always break it up but yeah as far as just his descriptions are unlike anything i've ever read there's a weirdness to them and a texture and a depth to them that i mean i don't know they're almost unlike anything i've ever read before it's it's fascinating it's it's, they're really good every time i read them i'm like i need to go back because i probably (laughs) haven't read that for 15 or 20 years but yeah anyway but that castle in general would be a fascinating place to know that it existed in the world and in particular fuchsia's little you know hidey hole up at the very top is really appealing to me well my goal is to read it before you reread it okay (laughs) the race is on (laughs) all right well my last one might branch us out into some other things i don't know but i've chosen to go with the iliad and in particular troy Oh. As a kid, Paul, I loved thinking about Troy and this place from the past, right? This real mm-hmm. place. This isn't a fictional place, is it? Well, no, but yeah, kind of. You know, it certainly was never like it is in our imaginations mm-hmm. with its, you know, great big halls and and just the the way that I picture it is more out of this world than realistically you know, an old Macedonian city, (laughs) you know, over there, uh, would ever be, um, I want the magical place. Mm -hmm. I don't need the magic. I don't need the the Greek gods to get involved, but I want the old bustling, you know, seven wonders of the world better than all of those. 
ancient place to have been real the way again that we imagine it. I want the the uh, wooden horse to be a real big, huge wooden horse that was taken in, you know, just craftsmen and um, weaponry and, you know, great jewels and artifacts and hallways and great battlements that you can protect yourself out from the, the, the angry uh, Greeks on the plains right there by the sea. Mm -hmm. I just, I love the, the place that I imagine Troy to be. And I love the story that goes on there. And again, in the Iliad, there are plenty of times where Homer steps back and lets us relax a little bit with the people who are inside of Troy. You know, we get to see them with family. We know what's coming, and so it's dreadful at the same time, but we are getting those moments uh, where, you know, Hector might be watching his child play Mm -hmm. or... Penelope is dealing with things and and their kids and and it's just so I don't know there's something about this magical place that is actually part of a humanity uh that we have lost you know these mm-hmm. and and I I therefore this is kind of a stand in uh, you know, and I, I do mean the real ones. Like I could have gone with other myths, like the from the Odyssey. Like, oh, I wish that this crazy place exists. You know, the or the the Cyclops mound. Right. Um, you know, I. But I don't. I, I don't. Those are fun to read about, but I don't care about them. I don't care about uh, Scylla and Charybdis. You know, the the great water uh, um, uh, deep monsters and mm-hmm. and whirlpools and such. I think those are neat, fantastical places, but it's the real ones that I want to want to have been real. This yeah. imagined past that we have, so it's kind of as a stand-in for a lot of these mythical cities, you know, Camelot, um, Shangri-La, El Dorado, Atlantis. Mm-hmm. Oh, I wish that these places. The way again, I know that they're kind of somewhat based on real places from travelers' tales and whatnot. Uh, that have been grossly exaggerated, but I, I want those exaggerated places, you know, be, that are beyond our imagination or that really strike the heart of wonder. Mm-hmm. I want those to have been real. And I was thinking about this in terms of uh, the the real places like this that do still exist that we've made into fiction, you know, like uh, Tintagel uh, Castle in in England I love that place and it does feel like a mythical ancient um castle city you know you you get the arthurian legends and and you're like oh yeah this is totally where this stuff could be mm-hmm. is right there on the sea and it feels violent but protecting you from the elements and it's beautiful and and hard and to imagine that place bustling you can totally see you know like uh mystical mythical swords or knights coming from around you know stonehenge and the the myths around stonehenge um all of these various uh places that are from ancient history that inspired fiction mm-hmm. even if that fiction's just just fiction you know yeah sometimes i'm like i, I wish we got it right sometimes in our fiction that these places existed in the way that they do in our imagination, even though they don't, it's still, Mm -hmm. I love that there are places like this on the earth that we can go and visit and feel like some of these fictional places from the past are real. Yeah, I I do. I I love that. I've been to England a few times. And one of my favorite things is you can travel around and enter into a storybook. Um, 
and some of them aren't even old. You know, you can go to 221B Baker Street. Yeah. And they've made it into Sherlock Holmes' home. You know, mm-hmm. it's complete with uh, the, the, the setup is just the same. You've got his... Uh, stuff on the the walls from the books you know the hr the the bullet holes the you know they've made it so that this fictional place is kind of real yeah um you can go to the moors and feel like you're in wuthering heights and that's more of a natural place that makes Mm -hmm. it feel like that fictional story could have taken place um you can go to um uh, up in the Lake District and go to places where they've kind of made it look like the the Peter Rabbit stories are are, mm. are there. You know, it's just so they they've done a great job of kind of making some of these places real. I mean, you can go to King's Cross Station and there's a shopping cart that looks like it's taking you through uh, Platform Nine and Three Quarters. Yeah, I love that they do that in Great Britain. I'm sure we do some of that in other places too. But over there, it sometimes seems like it's a it's a deliberate project and worth the the money and the work to make some of these fictional places become real. And yeah. I, I love that. Oh, that's great. I really like that choice. And I think there's somewhat, this may be a tenuous connection. I don't think it is to like what I was saying about butcher's crossing where mm. it's these places that you wish they, ex- there's the myth of the American West mm-hmm. and we all know that that wasn't real, but it was grounded in some reality. And so when you go hiking and you come across this Valley that looks like it's unspoiled, even though you know, it's not, it kind of gives you those same feelings that you were just describing where what if, or yeah, maybe in the past it really was kind of like this. And I think there's a lot of power to that. And I think there's a reason that a lot of these myths have stuck around because they tie into some pretty primal feelings. That is the reason maybe that we wish they were real, you know, and for each different place, it might be slightly different, but I'm glad you mentioned um, Baker street. Cause that was actually one I had debated even <laughs> putting on my list of, of three. Cause you know, again, just the amount of detail that went into that and, and it starts to feel like this real place because you, like you said, you know, the bullet holes, you know, where the papers are, where the, you know, all uh-huh. these different things, like it, it comes down to these authors have created these, these worlds that are so immersive and amazing. I think that's a big reason why they keep sticking with you, you know, man, I love it. It's, I know. I, I mean, right now I kind of feel that sense of wonder and wondering mm-hmm. what stories have I not even read yet that are going to become this for me. They're going to, they're going to feel like a physical place from my own memory or mm-hmm. my own dreams. And I do love those kinds of uh, promises that reading and fiction and, or, or should we say nonfiction in the case of like the Iliad, right? No, <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And, and I do feel like one of them will be the, the Gormenghast books. Yeah, uh, for sure. I'm, I'm excited about those. When but, I like that we've kind of explored, I do think there are the literal, like you said, we started with some of the obvious ones, but I do think there's different ways to look at this. And, mm-hmm. and, t- and look back on some of the things that have happened in the past or like your wife's choice from Jane Austen and things like that. I think uh-huh. that's what's interesting about this is it doesn't have to just be those 10 that are listed on every Google search you do. There's ways you can kind of get creative and think about other other ways to look at it. And that open up different parts of us. Like we, we've tried to we've tried to examine why. 
you know, what is it about us that makes these places the ones? Mm-hmm. There's, the, there's the food. Mm-hmm. You know, I love cooking and I love eating good food. And there's the sitting down and relaxing and having a peaceful time. But there's the mystery, right? I think that mm-hmm. fits our personalities quite, quite well. You know, yeah, we want too. that dangerous book in the corner that'll take us to a different world, but we want to be, you know, in our, in our own chair with exactly. our own hot drink next to us. <laughs> exactly. I think it sums us up pretty well and probably a fair number. I, I would be so bold as to say a fair number of our listeners too. I think so. But I am curious about what we didn't bring up that other, that listeners might think of. I'd love to hear from uh, them uh, more on this topic. And try and figure out a way to share some of that on our, you know, shows over the next few months, mm-hmm. because I think this is, this is one of the reasons why we like fiction, right? It feels real. It feels like it becomes a part of us. And the same thing with these, these places. I mean, we've got the characters and maybe someday we'll do, you know, side characters. We wish were our best friends or you know, yeah, who knows, exactly. uh, but beyond character, there's, there's these places that, uh, you know, these magicians can, can make, come alive for us Mm. and feel just as real as these places I visited 20 years ago that are now more mythological in my mind than, than real, you know, it becomes, they, they occupy a similar space in my mind and in my heart. And, um, I just, I think that's so much fun. So I appreciate you indulging with me this week, Paul, this has been a a good, fun conversation. I'm glad you Um, picked it. It has been a lot of fun. I'm curious if uh, some of the worlds that I will encounter in Old Man's War uh, make me feel like, oh, I wish that that were real. But I'm kind of thinking, no. Yeah. (laughs) Based on what I'm getting so far, it feels a little (laughs) more like, oh, these are places that are cool to read about, but I would never want to ever visit these uh, dangerous wars or whatever. Nice to be able to close that book whenever you want to. Yep, exactly. (laughs) All right. Anything else, Paul, before we close down for another week? No, I think we're good. I, I'm just excited to, uh, like you said, explore some of these worlds. And whether it's Gormenghast or some other one that's on my shelf that I don't even know about, it's always one of the, the great things about reading is you never know. Anytime you open a book, what's going to be in there? Mm-hmm. Well, in uh, I, I need to stop saying week. I need to incorporate Fortnite into mm, our should. modern American lexicon again. You know, it's a it's a phrase that we just don't use. Oh. And so I shorten it to next week, but it isn't next week. We'll be back mm-hmm. in a fortnight <laughs> uh, with our uh, scary stories that keep us up at night and our talk on ghost stories, horror stories, you know, our scary things, what what thrills us, some of, some of our past experiences. And then we'll, you know, on the side of that episode, also talk about those three stories that we talked, you know, introduced earlier on in the episode. We look forward to that. Hope everyone's having a great October so far. We'll talk to you soon. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. You can follow the Mooks and the Gripes and get show notes and book and film reviews at mooksandgripes.com. On Twitter, you can find Trevor at Mooks and Paul at BiblioPaul. You can also get information about future shows on our Patreon. If you'd like to donate to the show, anything and everything, even a dollar a month, helps and is deeply appreciated. You can become a patron at patreon.com slash mooks. Until next time.